Hi, I'm Dr. John Schumann, and you're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. On today's episode, I talk with the Download's co-hosts, Matt Gleason and Jane Mudgett, about ways we can all cultivate healthy minds for ourselves, those we love, and our communities. Welcome, everyone, to the first Mental Health Download of this 2021 season. I'm Matt Gleason, and today my co-host is my dear friend, Jane Mudgett. We are so excited to be kicking off the 2021 season focused on cultivating healthy minds with Dr. John Schumann. He is president of OU Tulsa and also holds the Gusman Endowed Chair in Internal Medicine within the OUTU School of Community Medicine. Dr. Schumann authored the blog Glass Hospital since 2010, writing monthly posts aimed at demystifying medicine and bringing transparency to healthcare and policy for lay audiences. He's also written for national publications such as The Atlantic, Slate, Reader's Digest, and NPR's health blog. Dr. Schumann is also the developer, co-producer, and host of the Studio Tulsa program Medical Mondays on Tulsa's local NPR station. His weekly show explores healthcare and the human condition. He also has contributed to the national NPR radio programs Marketplace and All Things Considered. Okay, let's get started. The Mental Health Download starts now. We're going to start with really an overarching macro question, and that is with respect to 2021 and the the mental health care and physical health care, so health care of both areas. What are you most hopeful about when it comes to that for 2021? I'm most hopeful about coronavirus vaccine and it being distributed more widely and more systematically to get herd immunity in our populations and for the pandemic to recede. And, you know, I think if we can hit the fulcrum or the turning point in the pandemic, you know, all of us collectively are going to feel a lot less anxiety, probably. I mean, we all have reacted to this differently. Some, you know, have have had, you know, understandably tremendous amounts of anxiety. Some have gotten sick with COVID and been, you know, critically ill or died. Many of us have loved ones or uh, acquaintances or coworkers in the case of, you know, healthcare professionals, patients, who have suffered or died. You know, many of us have had COVID, you know, and, and of course the one of the challenging things about it has been that it's has such variance in terms of how it affects people. And so for some people, it really is like a cold or a bad cold, or some people don't even really get symptoms at all. So if 2021 can be a year where we turn the corner on the pandemic, that's something that I remain optimistic about, even though Here we are in January, and we're already getting lots of news stories about bungling of the distribution of the vaccine. And there's a huge, huge demand, and the demand right now is exceeding supply. On the good side of that, I will say that people are demanding the vaccine. That's a really good thing, because we know from the news that there's a lot of vaccine hesitancy and a lot of vaccine denial, quite frankly. So the fact that people really are clamoring to get this is a really good sign. People want to get this because they want to get back to normal. So that's my big chunk of optimism. If you want to get out of talking about the pandemic, one thing I'm optimistic about is uh, the advent of telemedicine. I think that the pandemic has really pushed that forward in a huge way. And I think it's something that we've become more accustomed to on sort of both sides of that, 
the, the provider side and, and the patient side. And I think that's many experts predict that that's going to be something that stays with us. And then the other thing I'm optimistic about is that voters in Oklahoma voted to pass expand Medicaid so that we're going right. to have Medicaid expansion in this state, which is going to provide a baseline of health care to hundreds of thousands of additional people in this state that are uh, low income or can't afford to quote unquote be in the system and are uninsured and so suffer for a, you know, a number of reasons. They probably defer or delay going to seek medical care, or if they do, they wind up with huge, what are called self-pay bills, mm -hmm. and can often wind up in collections or bankruptcy. So those are three things, in spite of a worldwide pandemic, I'm pretty optimistic about. You, you touched on Medicaid expansion. We're so excited about that here at Mental Health Association Oklahoma. The legislative session starts very soon, February 1st. So is there any particular legislation or maybe you know, Medicaid expansion legislation that you're going to be monitoring this year? Yeah, so that is a big task for the legislature is figuring out how they're going to pay for Medicaid expansion. Now, the good news for the state of Oklahoma, which for many years has been in seems like in you know some kind of financial trouble because of the way we we sort of fund our state initiatives or our state budget and we do have this you know heavy reliance on oil and gas which is understandable because we're we're an energy state i'm going to definitely be following that whole kind of discussion about how we expand medicaid there were some things talked about early on including like a provider tax or a tax on hospitals that seemed to go down and is not going to happen necessarily but the fortunate thing I, I meant to say is that we're, you know, the state is only on the hook, so to speak, for 10%. Right. So since 2010, 2012, we have opted not to participate in Medicaid expansion, which means that we're paying our income taxes, our federal tax dollars go out of Oklahoma collectively and don't come back to us in the form of, you know, now a 90% match. So the federal government pays 90% of the cost of Medicaid care for Medicaid enrollees. And so we're essentially saying no to that benefit. Now, the state's claim and many legislators and, and folks in our executive branch have said for a long time that that 10% may be enough to break the bank. They've also said that they don't trust the federal government that, in fact, the 90% fixed match may go down at some point, although that I've never seen anything that indicates that that's going to be so. So that's one thing I'm going to be following. I certainly, other issues that I follow... There's always questions every year that come up in every legislative session about the Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust. There was a recent uh, referendum on that, which I think went down to defeat. So we're not going to actually change the formula on the on the T-set. T-set was um, monies that were came from the massive multi-state uh, tobacco settlement. And so those dollars are put in the trust and, and are then used for grants for tobacco cessation and other public and preventive health causes. You know, it stands to reason that I'm not opposed entirely to some of that money being used for Medicaid expansion, although I think a lot of people are wary of that because it would allow, the, the thinking is it would allow the legislature to raid TSET, which has been kind of walled off from legislative finagling. Yeah. Other things I look at, I would just, I have, a, I made a list here. So higher education funding, I work in public higher education. That's always something we've, we're basically at in real dollars, 2001 levels of appropriation to public higher education. So we're, we're always struggling to keep up in that. But that, I would include common ed in that. GME, graduate medical education funding, that's something the state has taken on. 
because we lost a federal match a couple of years ago. This is something that gets fairly Byzantine. Uh, fortunately, the state has stepped in and doesn't want to see medical training go away uh, because we're an underserved state generally with the number of providers. So I, I always will follow that. Fortunately, there's bipartisan support for that. That's good. And then mental health parity. So that's something that gets talked about a lot. We have some laws on the books, but uh, I think I don't have to tell you guys or this audience that we really have not achieved mental health parity in our healthcare endeavors. Yeah, and and all of those at Mental Health Association we are supportive of, and you've already alluded to that the funding may be difficult. Let's step back for a moment and just take another view. And this idea that we're working on this year at the Mental Health Download is the idea of cultivating healthy minds. And my particular saying is my body ain't squat without my brain. So I really like the idea of cultivating healthy minds and healthy brains. Is there something that, that you're focusing on that you would like to improve upon with mental health in 2021? I, I really think the demand of that will be exponentially greater than the prior few years. Yeah. So improving mental health or cultivating healthy minds. So you know, and Jane, I, I consider you an expert on this because of your book and the, and the, is it five F's? Five alive. Yeah. The five, five F's. Five yeah. F's. Yeah. So think about that. So I, I made a list here, but I mean, the importance of sleep cannot be overlooked. So I think one of the words of last year that has really stuck with me is the word doom scrolling. This is this idea of scrolling through our phones or our tablets or our computers, looking at headlines about the apocalypse, whether it's about the election, whether it's about the pandemic, yeah. whether it's about violence, I had to consciously take a break from the news and the news cycle. And so being home or working from home frequently throughout the pandemic, it did allow for more family time and for more, I would say, collective uh, enjoyment of culture, be it, you know, streaming services on television, right. or that kind of thing. So, you know, exercise, most of us aren't going to gyms, if we have that habit, but you know, Many are going outside. It, it doesn't have to be, you know, high output. It can be walking. It's just so important for the mental health to walk or just get some outdoor or some energy expenditure every day that's physical because of the symbiosis of, you know, body and mind working together. And then nutrition. So, you know, trying to, to, to eat nutritively. So trying to eat things that nourish you. Many of us have junk food habits. So, you know, definitely, I think during a pandemic or whether it was holiday time or what have you, you know, it's okay to indulge in those things, but to, you know, to keep it manageable and to focus most of your plates or your meal on the healthier things, mostly, you know, fruits and vegetables. I think there's lots of debates and I, you know, I've looked at this in some of the writing I do in, in Medical Monday. There's, there's all kinds of diets that are out there, but the best sort of diet is the thing that's healthiest that you can sustain that can be part of your life. So th those are important. You know, therapy is certainly an important part, I think, of mental health. And so, you know, not everybody's open to it. There certainly continues, unfortunately, to be stigma associated with people seeking help with their mental health. I have a family member who I think has this just right and says mental health or therapy should be like going to the dentist. It's just something we should all do for our baseline mental health. Now, you know, the demand, if, if that were the case, the demand might well exceed the supply. But again... There are new paradigms. There are, I mean, I, I haven't tried them myself, but there are, there are various apps, various chat bots and things. It sounds kind of scary, but that can help 
with mental health. I'm not advocating a particular one. But again, my optimism about telemedicine, telemedicine makes things, I think, much more affordable and accessible for people. And there are a number of both, you know, private companies, but also workplace supported types of mental health arrangements where people can access some mental health support. And I think that that's really important. And then lastly, I had on here something, you know, about support groups. I mean, many of mm-hmm. us have right. either experienced trauma or, you know, have mental health challenges and then finding kindred spirits, people who've either gone through similar types of experiences. Again, you know, meeting in person for a support group is probably something you're not going to want to be doing during the pandemic without physical distancing or wearing masks. But again, the Zoom culture or the online culture, you know, what I have found and what's so important for mental health and one thing the pandemic has taught us is just how important a sense of social well-being, social cohesion is. So in my sort of day-to-day practice, I'm maybe stereotypically like a male, so I don't pick up the phone and call like old friends very often. I do it sometimes. I would say my wife is much better about that, schedules time to talk to friends. She has regular Zoom chats now with college roommates, with high school friends, even with some med school friends. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting how the pandemic has reinforced this idea of, hey, we're all kind of isolated. Let's get together. And I I think that that's been a net positive is seeing I I certainly hope those types of support groups or, you know, friendship circles will continue well beyond the pandemic. Right. Those are all good items, and and we could include things like basic items of mindfulness and meditation and just a way to quiet our mind, which is different than when we actually need therapy and support groups. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I kind of want to do a follow-up question to that. And, you know, we, we talk about, you gave some wonderful examples of how we can take care of ourselves. And, you know, we, we've learned during the pandemic, especially at Mental Health Association Oklahoma, that, you know, we have, our staff have had to take care of their own mental health before they can help others. And so, you know, once, once people follow your, your wonderful suggestions and they, they've, they're good with their mental health, are there any suggestions for that same person to go out and cultivate healthy minds, you know, within their families, within their neighborhoods or cities, state, nation. You know? you know, I think the biggest, the biggest thing to do it at a broader level is to acknowledge it. The biggest barrier to, I would say, mental health improvement is our own sense of shame, our individual sense of shame or collective sense. So when we have mental illness or what we now, I guess, call SMI, serious mental illness in the family, we often try to um, compartmentalize it and sort of almost de-acknowledge it or, or hide it from other people. So I think acknowledgement is the first part. We have to accept that this is a normal part of life and that, you know, many of us have mental health struggles, personal struggles, or struggles in our own families or communities. And so if we're able to be honest about it and open, just talking, just being open about things is a huge reducer of shame. And if you're able to do that and people are able to acknowledge it, I think parcel to that is you reduce stigma as well. I guess what I'm saying is people becoming advocates. Now, not everyone is set up to be, you know, a sign carrier or, you know, to the legislature, but letter writing is effective. Phone calls are effective. Zoom calls can be effective. So essentially advocating people have energy about stuff that's personally meaningful. So if you have experience with your own mental health needs or your mental health needs not being met, you know, finding out more about what's in your community, like Mental Health Association Oklahoma or Family and Children's Services or 
you know, advocacy groups, whether it's around a disease specific condition, a disease specific advocacy group, or it can be, you know, a, a much broader array of things. So for example, we were talking about cultivating healthy minds. One group I would highlight is Healthy Minds Initiative. So that's something that's philanthropically funded here in Tulsa, but is working statewide to broaden access to mental health care and really working hard through scientific, legislative, and public relations means to advocate for mental health parity, essentially. And I think those are all ways, so whether it's connecting with one of, one of those organizations that I mentioned, or individually, collectively, you know, if it, and if there's time and treasure. And so if you can donate, if you're resourced enough to be able to right. donate money, that's, that's a great, op- great uh, example of something you can do. Letter writing is, is a huge way, or, you know, volunteering your time. All of those add up. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, John, and that is communicating just in general with our legislators is one way to make them aware or people in social services is to make them aware of our needs, our priorities, things important to us, and they don't hear from us often enough, but do it in a way that we're comfortable with. I think that's a really good suggestion to take a a step a little deeper down that path of mental health, I want to take just a moment and and move to suicide. And my area of interest and expertise has been related to longevity. And while longevity for the most part has increased, not just in the United States, but that's the area I focus on, all of a sudden there's been a wake-up call in the last few years that that trajectory has been challenged because of addiction and suicide. It was a real wake-up call that, generally speaking, it's an improvement in healthcare that increases uh, our longevity, but this is something that is now different. Would you share some of your thoughts on what you think that trajectory may be in the future? Yeah, so I I think what you're alluding to here is so-called deaths of despair, and this was probably probably best articulated by, well, actually a husband and wife pair of economists, Angus Deaton and Ann Case, who work at Princeton, and they've written articles. I think they have at least one book, but they looked at, at this data over the last, say, 50 years. And, you know, as you pointed out, life expectancy in the United States for, oh, I don't have the exact range, but basically people like 55 to 64 or 50 to 64 has actually gone down in each of the last three years. Yes. And these are the so-called deaths of despair. These are people who, as you pointed out, may have opioid addiction, other types of chemical dependency, be it alcohol or other non-opioid drugs. And the deaths of despair typically, you know, it's it's a complicated problem, but these are folks who often feel marginalized outside of the mainstream who may have lost their job, their livelihood, their profession, may not have either the educational status or a flexibility, if you will, to retrain. And so sort of the economy, as we've moved to a more technologically focused or so-called gig economy, you know, many folks have been left behind. Many folks who, who have engaged in careers in manual labor, for example, or worked on an assembly line, have seen job loss due to automation, yeah. robotics. And so, you know, if you, lose, if you lose your job, you lose your income, or you've developed some type of chronic pain because of a repetitive stress injury, 
and wind up getting prescribed right. an opioid and get hooked, you can kind of see the cascade of events that leads to, you know, in a broad sense, this decrement in life expectancy. And it, it's a very thorny problem to solve. And it involves, I think, some political change as well as, you know, economic and social you know, this sense of dislocation that people feel. And, you know, and I, this is obviously not a political podcast, nor would I want to talk about politics. But, you know, we've seen major conflict in our country in the last year, right. the last week, really. The, right. But there are many, many people who feel like, you know, the system is, is whether it's you want to use the word rigged against them or the, or the system has shut them out and they feel left behind. And, and you know, some of that fuels anger and rebelliousness, but I think for many people, it fuels a depression and a passivity and you know a, a life of desperation. And so that's a complicated problem to solve, but one way is we've got to have funding for social services and mental health services. You know, We talk about job training, job skills, job retraining all the time. And what we have to train our young people to do more than anything else is be adaptable, right? But one thing we know is that the only constant is change. And so right. having things like language skills, be it foreign languages or computer languages, being facile with your ability to absorb new information and be able to kind of implement that is going to be paramount, I think, in the sort of the new economy. And so obviously for those of us that are older, it's harder for us to retrain. It's harder for us to learn new skills. But if we put adaptability and flexibility as a prime learning goal, and we consider ourselves lifelong learners and we try to kind of stay in the mindset of always acquiring knowledge or being curious and asking questions, those things will, I think, in a way, keep us healthier and keep us more engaged. Solving that problem is going to require effort, investment, and and frankly, you know, a lot of help to people who are pretty down. And the thing is, those deaths of desperation often result from people feeling incredibly isolated. And so we talked earlier about social cohesion and about people being able to wrestle with their shame, admit their shame, unburden themselves from shame, you know, and acknowledge and, and, and hopefully destigmatize their struggles. And in doing right. so, they may find some kind of communal benefit or commiseration that can help elevate their spirits. I mean, that's one of our toughest problems, I think, as a nation and as a society. Yeah, I agree. I, I believe, as you alluded, that we have to chip away in a lot of different areas because it made me think, for example, about our mental health concerns with younger people as well related to substance abuse and how that's affecting that longevity as well at the different end, sort of a different barbell, the younger group and real concerns in rural communities as well. It's more complex than meets the eye. I am happy to report on on the other on the other side of the coin is that the we have a national suicide hotline but we also have the suicide prevention hotline that has been activated that's the 988 number mm -hmm. and that has been activated in the United States and it's a lot easier to remember so that's on suicide prevention and I just wanted one ray of light in that area so I was happy to see that you know, throughout the pandemic, Mental Health Association Oklahoma, we've deployed our street medicine program called Mobile Medical Intervention Team, 
We're going to have a similar program in Oklahoma City in 2021. And those teams, they're helping meet the healthcare needs of individuals living within mental health association apartment complexes and individuals experiencing homelessness. And that team provides primary patient care as well as acute episodic care. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on street medicine and you know what you would like to see done to help people experiencing homelessness have greater access to healthcare. So thank you for the plug about mobile medical intervention team because there's a strong OU Tulsa tie to that and we're you know proud to be a part of that. First of all, I think that any healthcare student or even social work, so whether it's medical students, PA students, nursing students, allied health students, I think they should all have that experience of working with the homeless population, both as a social good and as an educational experience. That's one thought. So that doesn't happen at all automatically. Right now, it requires a student to say, hey, I want to do this on an elective basis. So that's, in my view, unfortunate. I think that we're doing a disservice to our students not to have them essentially rotate through that type of experience is a mandatory thing. What you mentioned as far as street-level care, one of the fancy names for this is, is PACT, like a PACT team's programs for assertive community treatment. And at OU Tulsa, we have a, we have a long-standing PACT team, goes by the name IMPACT, and it also dovetails well with mental health associations, mobile medical intervention team. But the idea here is that you bring the healthcare to the people who, for a variety of reasons, usually due to serious mental illness, aren't able to access the system, aren't able to sort of make an appointment, follow through with that appointment, show up on time, have adequate transportation, you know, heaven knows, copays, deductibles, all that kind of silliness, and then get the care and the follow-up that they need. So it requires a little extra effort. It's expensive. It's an investment up front. But all of the literature on this, all of the science shows the return on investment is huge. So like a million dollars invested in this type of programming will save three to six to $10 million on the back end from preventing hospitalizations, preventing operations, intensive care unit stays. And similarly, one of the greatest things about mental health association is that you have spent you know, decades working in the fields of trying to solve the homeless problem and pro- by providing housing for people who are homeless. And, and so it takes a little bit of a leap of, not faith, but understanding. And I've been, you know, working in a healthcare environment, so I'm educated about this, but a housing first strategy, it actually saved money to simply provide housing for our homeless population. And it sounds kind of crazy. It sounds expensive, which it is. It sounds like when there's a shortage of housing, that it could be difficult to do that. But if you actually provide a house or an apartment for someone who is living on the street, and you provide sort of the support and the wraparound services that are needed to go with that, the medical demand and the cost to the system go way down. Now, the problem with that is who's going to make the upfront investment. Now, interestingly, like on the East and West Coast, many of the hospital or the big hospital systems have made these investments. They see the same chronically homeless and often mentally ill patients cycle through their emergency room again and again and again. They make follow-up appointments that aren't kept, or they do things that just defy logic in terms of, you know, trying to make specialty referrals or things that, you know, folks who are have disorganization as a primary problem aren't going to be able to follow through with. So by providing housing and having teams that go out and provide that care, it makes a tremendous 
savings on the back end. And, and so the, the issue is if a medical system is large enough where they can actually realize those cost savings, there's the incentive for them. In our very sort of divided healthcare economy where we have insurers as a separate line from the providers, as a separate line from the patients, and then often other different third parties, quality assessors and things, we talk in a collective aggregate sense about where the money savings are, and that stands to reason, but then who's going to actually realize those savings? Honestly, it takes a progressive vision from our funders, you know, be they, whether they're foundation funders or whether it's our, our public funding, our state and our federal funders to have enough vision to say, these are investments that we have to make in our fellow humans. These are our brothers and sisters, and we have to do what we can to, you know, essentially pick them up and not not castigate them as other, as different, as not us, and to sort of say, oh, it's their problem, let them suffer. We definitely value liberty. And there's, you know, many, especially in Oklahoma, where we're a very populous state, it, people say, hey, we don't want handouts. But I don't think of this as handouts. I think of this as, in a much more charitable sense as helping our fellow brothers and sisters, you know, and let's face it, some people just do need more help. And, uh, you know, providing that help in the long run, is better for all of us. It just is. But it's difficult sometimes to convince people of that. We are going to uh, wrap up with really the fourth part of our mission at Mental Health Association Oklahoma, and that is regarding criminal justice reform. And this was an area that I started looking around a little bit. And in my mind, I went to addiction. And we've done some good things with medical-assisted treatment with methadone and suboxone. And there's been some new compounds and new research about that. And I think that's really quite good. But it doesn't seem to me that we've implemented much when it comes to legislation since the PMP program, that prescription monitoring program. Do you see anything on the horizon or there are policies that you'd like to see in that area of criminal justice reform as it relates to mental health? Yes. First of all, homelessness is not a crime. Right. And what I am heartened by is the fact that there's bipartisan support for criminal justice reform and for nonviolent offenders, nonviolent, usually drug offenders. Right. These draconian sentences. I think there's been general recognition that we've skewed. We've been overzealous in our belief that punishment is the way to go. And, you know, let's be honest, there is a huge racial disparity in overrepresentation of people of color in jails and prisons. And the statistics are kind of horrifying if, especially if you're, you know, an African-American male, like something like a one in three chance of winding up uh, in the criminal justice system, whether it's jail or ultimately prison. So the, you know, I was very heartened by, for example, Governor Stitz, that it was in 2019 before the pandemic, it was in 2019 or early 2020, there was the day where he had this mass day of clemency and they let like right. over 500 people out of prison. And, you know, he wants us to be a top 10 state. Well, we've for a long time been a top 10 state in incarceration. So I think that right. would be something as a worthy goal of getting us out of that. You know, I look at the Women in Recovery Program as a model. It's been cited nationally numerous times. You know, it's a heavy investment. And but it's it's the success rate is very high. It's diverted women out of prison. It's given them parent training, job training skills, and putting them on a healthier you know, path away from chemical dependency and hopefully out of the criminal justice system. And often, you know, 
through no fault of their own. You know, people who brought up victimized by trauma, and we know that trauma tends to repeat itself across generations. So, but you asked a good question about legislation, and I just would say a word here about medication-assisted treatment. There's been some, you know, recent articles in the medical literature that I've looked at. We are way underperforming as a country in terms of medication-assisted treatment. So what that means is you have people who, who are habituated or addicted, if you want to use the word addiction, to opioids. We have great available medications that can help people taper off their opioids, right. de-necessitating them having to go to a doctor and, and essentially cajole for prescriptions, or worse yet, buy it on the streets, or even worse, more, you know, convert to illegal things like heroin or, or fentanyl or these, these horrible stories you hear of tainted drugs coming right. from uh, overseas or from uh, other countries imported into our country. So you mentioned Suboxone, which is buprenorphine mixed with naloxone, which is an, an opioid antagonist and right. it can be taken under the tongue. And so there are Suboxone programs. There's also, they're longstanding. We've had since the early 70s, methadone maintenance programs. That's been since the 70s. <laughs> yeah. But that just shows you kind of how outdated we are. So I, I'm not that optimistic here. I would like to see more advocacy in this area, but I think that like serious mental illness, addiction is often stigmatized and we, we put people who have addiction, even though many of us, many of our family members, many of our community members suffer through addiction, we still think of it as other. And so we've compartmentalized it into folks with addiction and we say, you know, go over here. There are inadequate resources and training devoted to medication-assisted treatment. And I will tell you that right now, there's a federal limit on how many Suboxone prescriptions any individual physician can write. It also requires additional training. And so what winds up happening is mainstream medical providers just usually punt and say, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. I don't want this as right. part of my practice. I don't maybe want these so-called undesirable patients coming into my practice. And so they just punt. And so there's, there's just inadequate access for people who are looking for medication-assisted treatment. If we could mainstream this and make it a part of, I mean, it's not rocket science, to be honest. It's very easy to learn. But mm -hmm. right now and still, and for many years, the federal government has required this eight-hour educational session, which doesn't sound like a lot. But for a lot of people, it's cumbersome. A lot of doctors don't want to take a full day out of practice to do this. And so it's just there are these bureaucratic burdens and legal burdens that make it so that it's something we don't offer routinely. And I think it should be part of primary care, frankly. And, you know, one one area we have seen improvement in this is the prescribing of naloxone for people who in, in many jurisdictions and states and localities are offering this now as, as something over the counter. Mm -hmm. And often doctors who prescribe opioids will often prescribe Narcan, which is a reversal agent for people. So if people are admitted to have had histories of overdose, we've also this intranasal Narcan. So we've, we've outfitted our paramedics and our right. response technicians with the ability to essentially insert this up someone's nose if they're found unconscious and it's a reversal agent and can save their life. Right. So this is something that has gained increasing acceptance because we have pushed it outside of the straight medical realm so that I look at as a positive and hopeful sign. But until we get some of this bureaucracy changed, I'm not that optimistic about wider access for medication-assisted treatment. But I think I'm glad that you're focusing on that issue. 
Well, it does seem uh, a little aged and archived when when I have that memory from 50 years ago of methadone clinics and learning about that. And we still have that now because it has yet to be mainstreamed as a reality, a social reality that we're living in. It's now time to wrap up and we've covered a lot of subjects. So thank you very much, Dr. Schumann, for doing that. And we always offer our guests a way to share some parting wisdom. And so let's offer that to you as well. Are there any last thoughts you'd like to share with our audience? Well, just thank you so much for having me on the program. I love podcasting, as you know, and it's an honor to be invited on the first show of the new season. So thank you for having me. And congratulations to the work you're doing. And Matt, I've seen I've seen the podcast posted all over, and it's, so it's it's great to see you getting out there. Yeah, my parting words of wisdom are: this last year, in particular, has has made many of us anxious, and I include myself in this category. Tremendous anxiety about where we're headed as a country, the future of democracy, our personal and collective safety and respect and honor for our fellow uh, brothers and sisters in our country. So that said, my parting word of wisdom is focus on what you can control because there is so much that we can't control. And that what you can control is what you eat, at least how much you try to sleep, even if sleeping is tough, whether or not you get some fresh air, some exercise, those kinds of good healthy habits that aren't that fun to cajole people about, but if you're if you're in the mindset where you can do that, and even if you're not, pushing yourself to do that can actually kind of break the cycle of either severe anxiety or a mild or moderate depression. So I think that that's important. But in regard to the pandemic, I mentioned to you I was optimistic about vaccine. Yeah. I know there's a lot of anxiety right now about the vaccine, both when can I get mine? And secondly, if I get it, should I get it? Or if I get it, am I going to get sick? please, word of wisdom, get the shot as soon as you can. And I know many of you in this listenership are out there trying to get your vaccine and have signed up dutifully and are frustrated by the lack of access. More vaccine is coming. Stay positive. You will get your opportunity to get your vaccine and we will put this pandemic behind us. That said, when you get your vaccine, keep doing your three W's as painful as that is. Wash your hands, watch your distance and wear your mask. Until you hear declared the pandemic is receding or we've achieved herd immunity, we're still going to have to do those things because even if we're vaccinated, we can still spread the novel coronavirus. But the end is in sight. The light is at the end of the tunnel and it's going to be a, you know, a long year. It already has felt like an endless year behind <laughs> us. But let's get, let's get over that hump and reach that inflection point in 2021. 